Matthew 27, and we, we got down to, well, we're going to pick up here in verse 45, I believe. We got down through last time. Um, we're, we are at uh, a passage of Scripture here that is probably the deepest chasm in the Word of God. The Lord has been uh, subjected to uh, tremendous uh, violence uh, against him, him, his person. He's been ridiculed. He's been rejected by his people. He's been scourged. He's been beaten, brutalized uh, by professionals. And uh, he's been hung up on a cross. And uh, there he hangs. And uh, that wasn't the worst of it yet, uh, as we're going to see as we go through this section here. Um, all that physical agony and suffering, the rejection, the mockery, uh, all of that was leading up to what we're going to go through and read the, this evening here and look at. And uh, that's what makes it very clear that he is all by himself as we read this and as we go through here. Um, let me say now, so as we go through this, the, there are seven sayings on the cross. We've, we've talked about them. We've studied them. There's only one in Matthew and the same one in Mark, and it's right here. Mark is not giving us all of the chronological detail. He's actually going to skip over detail. And he does that because of what he, how he presents the Lord. We'll talk some as we go about that. So, we're going we're gonna to read some, you know, we're going to read down here like verse 52. And the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints which slept came out, uh, slept arose and came out of the graves. Notice, after his resurrection. Yet when you read through it, it sounds like it just happened right then. Well, after he was dead, he was buried for three days. Then he came. So you have to be mindful as we go through this section here. Um, in 27 and in 28, that there are some details that Luke and Mark and John are going to plug in and fill up here. So don't. Uh, we, when we get down and we talk about those bodies of the saints and stuff, people got some wacky ideas about that stuff. Rather than just letting the verses say what the verses say and mean what they say, they come up with a whole bunch of different ideas. And quite honestly... To me, it's pretty clear, but we've been dealing with the Gospels that way, just taking it as it comes, the prophetic program, the nation of Israel, the little flock, the earthly ministry of Christ, all of those details here, just taking them as they come, not putting us into them and not interjecting uh, Pauline dispensation of grace, truth, doctrine into the passage, but rather just letting them be where they're at. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So, uh, again, the way that they tell time, this is from noon until about three in the afternoon. Darkness is going to come in over the land. And uh, it, it's as if God just reached down and pulled the curtains over uh, the, the sun, and the sun doesn't shine and so forth. And the, that's what's happening here. Verse 46, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice. So at the end here of the three hours of darkness, there, there's, a, there's a thing here about the darkness. And there, there, the physical darkness, obviously he's going to, we know from Luke and so, Luke 23, that he clouds, Mark 15, John, again, the, all the details, he black darkens out the sun. But the darkness here, come over to Luke 23. Let's just look at it. He, the darkness here is really a, represent, a type, picture, a representative, a, a figure, figure of the spiritual darkness that has uh, enveloped the earth as well as mankind at the time. Luke 23, 44. Luke 23, 44, and it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. Notice the sun was darkened. So there's a physical darkness. You know, they said it's supposed to start clouding up in storms, so we know what, 
We know what it is to have the clouds come in and darken out the sun, but yet if you go up in an airplane and you get above the clouds, what's shining? Bright. The sun is. So, there, but it's a picture here. Verse 46. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And, gave, and having said thus, he gave up the ghost. By the way, you'll look in verse 45 there. He says the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. Luke has the veil being rent in verse 45 when the sun was darkened, while Matthew, it isn't until after Christ's death that the veil gets rent. We're going to see that in just a minute. So Luke isn't paying a too much attention to chronological order either. And again, that's because Matthew is looking at him as king, and, 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 and Luke is looking at him as a man, and they're looking at him in different pictures and portraits. So they're really not trying to get the chronological order in order because they're, they're not writing a harmony of, of Christ's life, a synopsis of Christ's life. All that, you know, I spent today reading commentaries about Romans 8 verse 1 and so forth and the 10 words and everything. And I tell you what, there's a lot of pro, pro, you know, just yak about this stuff. And I was doing it not to learn anything, but just to kind of refresh why, you know, what they said about it. And again, that's what's happening. Matthew, come back there to, to Matthew 27. Matthew 27, there's darkness, verse 46, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cries, and then he's going to die. And then the verse, uh, 40, or verse 51, Matthew 27, 51, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves opened, and off you go. So what you have, again, is the writers aren't necessarily trying to get things in a chronological order because they're not trying to write a harmony, a, a synopsis of the life of Christ. Rather, they are try, they're getting their, that, those four behold statements, those four branch statements, those four pictures uh, from the Old Testament about the, about the Messiah in the place. And when you study the life of Christ, and, and again, I, I, I have been trying since we've been studying Matthew. By the way, this is like lesson 60-something, almost 70. I've been trying to show you those chronological events, you know, how we were going through Matthew 23, 24, 25 there, about how he's staying in time about, to him, about the kingdom and his second coming and all those events that are going to happen in his second coming and so forth. And I try to do that. And, and it's, it's an interesting thing here, honestly, about your Bible, uh, that there is only one author, and, uh, and yet it takes them 1,500 years between the time Moses writes some things and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John here, where those things begin to happen. You know, it's 50, a little over a little, little over 1,000 years when the psalmist David writes things that are now going to be fulfilled by the life of one author, and, and they just begin to, to fit in. So when you come back here, and he talks about this darkness, uh, look at John 1. I, I just, there's a passage here. The thing about darkness in Scripture uh, is really a sign of the predicament of mankind. That's what he's talking about. Um, John 1, verse 5. And the light shineth in darkness. Talking, uh, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, uh, was, was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. See, there's, so this isn't just turn the lights out, okay, when we leave this room tonight, we turn the lights out, it's dark. It, this is a spiritual condition. And uh, Paul, over in Colossians 1, talks about it. Colossians 1, in verse 13, uh, verse 12, Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom 
of his dear son. So the darkness is, is usually always a sign of the predicament of mankind, the sin issue in the earth as it covers the earth. Now, in Matthew 27, go back there, the, the issue here is, is what is the predicament that the Lord is in? At this hour, what is he, what's happening to the Lord? He's being made sin for us. That's what's happening. So, in, so again, the darkness is a, is a predicament of mankind in their sin, and yet what's happening to the Lord? He's being made sin for us, and off we're up and running now. Okay, so Matthew 27, verse 45, And from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, this uh, Psalms 22, where he, we're going to go over there in Psalms 22 in just a minute, where he quotes this from, he talks about his roaring. This isn't him just saying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? <laughs> What's going on? This is him, he is He's screeching it. He's yelling this out. He's just come out of three hours of darkness. Those three hours where he's been made sin. You'll notice he says, my God, my God. He doesn't say, Father. Beforehand, his first statement is, Father, forgive them. Here now it's, my God, my God. That, and this is the first time where Christ has looked at God the Father and God the Spirit my God, my God. Every other time he said, Father, now it's my God. And it has to do with the fact that the, the relationship has been broken now. Why hast thou forsaken me? This is the first time that something that had never before been experienced by the Lord in his humanity, he's now experienced it. Come over to John chapter number 8. So it's critical to see what's happening here. John chapter 8. If you look at verse 29. John 8, 29. And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone. For I do always those things that please him. Look back up at verse 16. And yet if I judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I and the Father that sent me. Chapter 10, he says, I and the Father are one. Okay? The Father has never left me alone. He hangs on the cross. He comes out of that battle with the adversary in those three hours of darkness. And what does he say? Father, Father! No, he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, again, they forsook him. He's been cut off. And if you come back to Psalms 22, the passage he's quoting, you'll see the why this is the case. And when he's forsaken by God, the, the, that, that relate, the relationship is cut off and the reasoning for the forsakening. Why did God the Father and the Spirit forsake him? See? Now, when he says this, the Jews around the cross, they understand. Because you think about who's there. <laughs> the chief priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. The Pharisees are the Bible thumpers. They know this book backwards and forwards. They're the straightest sect. We talk, when we're talking about Paul there in Philippians, and I'm a Pharisee, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. They knew he was quoting Psalms 22.1. They knew it. The Gentiles didn't. They, they're just, you know, goobers. They're just running around. You see, every Jew there, they be, they're beginning to learn something's up here that isn't the normal. And we'll see when we get down and talk about the centurion, the guards. They know this is not a normal guy. There's something different here. That's why they'll make that statement when he, they come down and they'll say, truly this was the Son of God. See, they know something's up. Psalms 22, verse 1. 
My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is the divine judgment of God on sin. And again, if you, the, there's those five deaths in, the, in Scripture, the spiritual death. Here's the definition. Here's an accurate description of what the second death is. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's hanging on that cross. He's being punished for the, from the presence of God, separated, cut off. People say, oh, what's hell going to be like? You know what hell's going to be like? Lonely. It's going to be torments. Don't get me wrong. There's a fire involved, an everlasting fire. But they're eternally separated from the presence of God. That's dark. It's going to be darkness. There's a description of that bottomless pit. Uh, I, I read a guy, and he's like, the bottomless pit, if you think about that, it's like you're always falling, and you never hit the bottom. Yeah, the sensation of always falling. I, I just it just it gives makes my gives me the chill bumps when you think about it. So the definition of spiritual death is not secession of existence. It's not annihilation. It's not soul sleep. They're laying here in the ground. But rather, it's the darkness of the soul and the damnation that goes with it but it's a separation from God. And that's what Christ took care of on the cross. And when we talk here about the things that are happening, it's staggering, and, and when you really kind of sit and think about this, about what he's going through for you and for I, for I. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Again, he's not just saying, my God, my God. He's, scream he's, he's yelling this. And it's not just from pain. You know, people, the commentaries, guys, the theologians, they talk about that. Oh, he's in so much pain, he's just yelling. It's not that. It's that God has made him to be sin for us. He's not screeching out, yelling out from the crucifixion and from physical pain, but rather it's from the spiritual death. As he, for the first time in his life, has come in contact with sin. Now look at verse 3, because here's the answer. But thou art, what? Holy. Habakkuk 1, verse 13 says, Thou art of pure eyes, then to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. So when the Lord, Habakkuk 1, verse 13, when the Lord is hanging there on the cross, Paul there in 2 Corinthians 5 says that God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. So that's, what he's, that's what's happening and we, we learn that. When you look at the events here in Matthew and the Gospels, man, you just it's just bone-chilling to see. Now, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they have no idea about what Paul tells us. They have no clue about he was made to be sin for us who knew no sin. They don't know that. When we get down into, uh, really, it's over in John, when we went through the, John, the end of John there, they didn't even understand the scriptures about his resurrection. They have no clue about any of it. We do because we have Paul. Paul puts that capstone on this information. Because of Paul, we can come back to Psalms 22 and say, okay, that's, that's this, that's this, that, and we can plug it in. The Jews didn't do that. When Peter in Acts 2, when he preaches about the crucifixion of Christ, it is not a good thing. It is not a propitiatorial act to, to pay for their sin. It's murder. You murdered him. You killed him. Acts 3, you killed him. Acts 4, you killed him. Acts 6, you killed him. Stephen gets them, you killed him. Acts 7. It's not a, oh man, there's our Savior. Woohoo! Paul's gospel. Not at all. It's a completely different attitude. There was no glory in the cross for the 
Israel, the little flock, and the believers. By the way, Paul, Galatians 6 tells us to glory where? In the cross. Different, completely different. Come back, Psalms 22, verse 2. Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not. And in the night season, and, and, and am not silent. Again, in the daytime, crying, but it's also what? Night season. Night in, your, night in scripture is always tribulation. It's always trouble. There's always something going on. That's why Paul says, you're not children of the night, you're children of the light. Verse 3, but thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confound. You delivered them, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip they shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Wow, there's Matthew 27, 43. That's where we were last week. You see, he says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Verse 3, I know the answer. You're holy. You can't look on sin. You've made me to be sin. But you know what? You delivered those stinking rascals, and you won't deliver me. Why? Verse 6. I am a worm and no man. The rest of the section here down, they go in and they're going to mock him and make fun of him. But yet the Lord, as he hangs there, what does he say? I am a worm and no man. God has, is making him to be sin. For us. And as God pours out the fury of, of his wrath against sin in an unmixed manner, without mixture, God, Christ hangs there and he suffers the second death. And that second death is in that issue of I am a worm. Now the Hebrew word, if you need a Hebrew meaning for the word, means red maggot. And it's the, red, it's the maggots that they would take and squish and get the red out to do the red dyeing of, the, of, the, of, of uh, the scarlet color to stain the robes and the garments and everything. That's where they got it from. And as he hangs there, the very life of his soul, Isaiah 53.10 says he gave his soul an offering for sin. There is literally, come, come over with me to Isaiah 66. There's literally a spiritual transaction taking place here that just, it, it just boggles the mind. I am a worm and no man. When he says that, he's talk, you see it here in Isaiah 66 about what he's talking about. Now, Isaiah 66, real quick where we're at. We're in the millennial kingdom. The kingdom has been established. He has, in his route, gone down into Bozrah and Edomia, burned up the opening down into the shaft that's down there into hell. And uh, they're coming up. Now we're in the kingdom. And uh, verse 24, And they shall go forth. By the way, they, if you look at verse 22, For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain, and it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, saying, saith the Lord. And they, so all the flesh on the earth, shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an horde unto all flesh. I am a worm and no man. They go out, they look down at those people that are down there in hell, and you know what they see? They just see a pile of maggots. And you know what? It never goes away. Come over to Mark chapter 9. They don't die off. Mark chapter 9. 
because that maggot is going to be, that worm, I should say, is going to be a picture of the degenerative nature of the souls of men, of the lost in hell. That's literally what that worm, when he says, I am a worm, sin has attacked his soul and has degenerated him down to where he says, I am not a man. I am no man. Mark 9, verse 43. Mark 9, quoting Isaiah 66 and Psalms 22, says, And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off, for it is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off, for it is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet and to be cast into hell and the fire that never shall be quenched, where, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Notice verse 47, just for a little side note here. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out, for it is better for thee to enter into the, what? See how Mark changes it from, li he says, life, life to kingdom. You see, their eternal life is associated with the kingdom, that's where they get, that's where they're looking for their eternal life. You and I have eternal life as a present possession. They're looking for it to come out there when the times of restitution and refreshing shall come, see. So they're ahead, by the way, verse 48, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And I'll be honest with you, no wonder the new Bible's change all this out because these verses are talking about a spiritual transformation in the souls of the lost a very natural degenerative activity of sin that's taking place upon the souls of mankind and it, and that degenerate that degeneration of their souls happens in hell come back to mark 8 that's why he asked this question in mark 8 36 what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What's coming? If you lose your soul, what's it going to end up being? It's just going to degenerate all the way down into it. He's not talking about not knowing where his soul was when he wanted to, get, you know, <laughs> kind of like in the morning when you get up and you look for your shoes. It's not talking about looking for something he lost. See, he lost his soul. He's talking about that piece of personal identity, who you know, your soul, you, the real you. That identity. And sin's going to come and cause a man to lose that. Come over to John 3. You see, by the way, it's interesting. The unsaved people in Scripture... They never have a name. Luke 16, rich man and, the, and who? Lazarus. He doesn't have his name. He's just called the rich man. And I know what happens is people say, no, his name is Dives. That's just Latin for rich man. That's not his name. Why? Because they're a worm. There's no, they're, they're, I'm a worm and what? No man. That degenerative nature the unsaved man loses his identity, and he has no name. And that's what's happening to Christ on the cross when he says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Psalms 22, he says, I am but a worm and no man. Now he's talking about, look at John 3. Just think about this. John 3, look at verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Calvary is described here as being lifted, lifting up a serpent on a pole. And if you go back and you remember back there in uh, Exodus when Moses goes out, what came in and bit the people? Do you remember? Serpents. So he puts that... He puts that serpent up and he hangs it up. And all they had to do was what? You remember? Look. Just look at it. 
That's why the medical field r runs a, a, a serpent on a pole, okay? Moses, just look. So, by the way, Moses made one out of brass. Brass in Scripture is a type of judgment. He puts it up on a pole, and he just says, look at it and you'll live. What's Christ doing? He's up on a pole, isn't he? He says, I'm going to be like a serpent hanging on a pole. Now, we know the serpent in Scripture is Satan. But if you have a clear view of what's happening on Calvary, when Christ cries, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's just come out of three hours of duking it out with the adversary. The, God, the Father is making him to be sin. And uh, if you think about that and kind of, you know, we're in the April's coming, Easter's coming season. When you begin to think about that, it just kind of like, wow, look at what he is. There sits sin, a serpent up on a pole. That's why Paul will say, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him to be sin for us. Who what? Knew no sin. And that's the tough part in all of this, is that he was made to be sin. He made him, him sin. He, he made this Christ sin itself. He didn't put it on him just to carry it. See? He didn't have any sin of his own. It was whose sin? Our sin, mankind's sin. That's why in Galatians 3 over there, he says, uh, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a what? Curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Galatians 3.13. You see, when you think about this, come back to Matthew 27. We've got to get moving here. Go back to Matthew 27. When he, he, he cries as he is crying, he is being forsaken by God. And what you're seeing is that second death, that issue of the divine judgment of God against sin. And when he cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, he's not just hanging there crying out under the physical pain and agony. He's literally been drinking the fury the wrath of his indignation against sin. He did it for you. Now, you'll notice verse, get some technical things here. We've got to get rolling. <laughs> Come over to Mark chapter 15. And watch this now in Mark 15. Because in Matthew 27, it's Eli, Eli, E-L-I, right? And Mark 15, verse 34, it's Eloi. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, Eli, E-L-I, is the Hebrew. E-L-O-I is the Aramaic word. Okay? And again, it's fitting according to the gospel you're going to read it in. In Matthew, Eli, E-L-I, means my mighty God. That's the Hebrew. E-L-O-I simply just means my God, as in the boss, as in here, this is who he is. And Mark's gospel presents Christ as the servant, so it's fitting that it would just simply be my God, again, referring to who he is, his identity. He's the boss. That's who he is. Where Matthew points to his power because he is the lion of the tribe of Judah so it's fitting that way now go back to Matthew 27 because there is a there is that that you need to pay attention to Matthew 27 verse 47 some of them that stood there when they heard that said thus this man calleth for Elias and straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on the reed and gave him to drink. 
And the rest said, Let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. So there's a, again, there's a lot of things going on in between all those verses, okay? That, you know, again, those seven sayings, there, there's a lot of things that are happening here. But notice, come over to John 19, just kind of notice some of the things that are going on here. <clears throat> Look at John 19. We'll just try to stick in John, I think. John 19, verse 28. John 19, 28. John 19, 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled the sponge with vinegar and put it up on the hyssop and put it to his mouth. There's where we're at in Matthew 27, 48. Okay? He goes over, boom. He says, my God, my God, I, why was thou forsaken me? Matthew, I'm, you know, Matthew 27, John 19, he says, I thirst, and they bring him the stuff. Again, by the way, remember we were talking about rich man and Lazarus. What did the rich man say to Abraham? Send Lazarus over and dip his finger and cool my tongue. And yet, here he is getting, I thirst to get the, the goodies. He's suffering, folks, he's suffering our hell. That's what he's doing. Hold on to John, come back to Matthew 27. So there's, again, there's some things that are happening in all of this that uh, you, you, trying to fit it all in and yet get it in in an hour, just, you know, um, is, is, is there. Verse 49, the rest said, Matthew 27, 49, let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Now, when they say this, when they say they think it's Elijah, Elias, Elijah, they're mocking him. They're taunting him here. They've just taunted him saying, if you're the son of man, God, come on down, save yourself. Let God come, let him save you. You see, they think that he's crying out for Elijah in response to their mockery. When he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabach. That's because what do they know about Malachi 4? Who's going to show up and then usher in the uh, Messiah? Well, Elijah's going to show up. By the way, so does Moses, the, the two witnesses. They're continuing to mock him here. They think that he's trying to call down Elijah. Again, they're, still, they're confused. <laughs> they don't know what's going on at all here. They, just, they think they got rid of the troublemaker. That's all they're thinking. Verse 50, when Jesus, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. When he yielded up the ghost, he, it's, it's like he dismissed it, dismissed the class. <laughs> We're done. You can leave now. Now, if you look back at John 10, I know I had you in 19, but if you look in John 10, verse 18, you, you, the judge would say, court dismissed. That's kind of the issue there about giving up the ghost. John 10, 18, no man taketh it from me, but I lay down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. So when it comes to him dying, Matthew says he dismissed everything. It's over with. And yet the Lord is really actually, uh, come, over, come back over to Luke 23, quoting Scripture. Luke 23 46, One of the, again, the sayings here, Luke 23, 46, he's quoting Psalms 31. We're going to go look at it. And when Jesus cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. By the way, notice now it's Father. The relationship has been what? Restored. See? The suffering is over. The payment has been made. Everything is okay now. 
the spiritual agony of separation and the wrath on, on, on the issue of sin is over. Now, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Now we're back to that intimate relationship. He gives up the ghost. He, he gives up his spirit. He gives up his soul. And then his body is taken and buried. Again, the three parts to you. He gave up his spirit. He gave up his soul, the ghost, and now the body is laid. Now, he's quoting Psalms 31. So run back to Psalms 31. Psalms 31. Psalms 31. He's quoting verse 5. Into thy hand I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. But look at verse 1. In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed to deliver me in thy righteousness. Bow down thine ear to me. Deliver me speedily. But be thou my strong rock for a house of defense to save me. For thou art my rock and my fortress, therefore uh, for thy name's sake lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net that they have laid privately for me, for thou art my strength. Into thy hand I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. Everything, that thing in Hebrews 12 too, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Everything he is enduring, going through at Calvary is based on truth. It's based on sound doctrine of what he knows about what God is doing. And you know what? I can endure the, for the joy that was set before me, Hebrews 12 too. He says, listen, I, I know what the end is. I know what's going to happen. And you know what? Bring it on. Let's get on with it. This is a walk in the park. This is no big issue. Why? Because it's, O oh Lord God of truth. And again, that's what Paul does. Paul comes in and says the same thing. He says, hey, his life lives in us because of what? The sound doctrine. Uh, we've been talking about it, being, having your life, the Spirit filled, being filled with the Spirit. Word of God comes in, the Spirit comes in with the Word, begins to work and control and to dictate. But it's always the Lord God of truth. You think about Romans 8, verse 18. I reckon for the, uh, for I reckon <laughs> the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory of that shall, which shall be revealed in us. You think about Philippians 2, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. He's not talking about following the Jewish program. He's talking about, follow, he's, he, he's talking about following the thinking that the Lord had, that he practiced. Bring that thinking, and which is what? Lord God of truth, what does the word say? Let's bring that into our thinking. God, come back with me to John 19. I don't know where you're at. John 19. John 19. He says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. John 19, verse 30. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up the ghost. It is finished. It's done. By the way, that's the last words of Psalms 22. It's the last words of Revelation 22. It's done. Okay? So when he hangs there and he gives up the ghost, guess what? It's done. It is finished. Now, Let's come back to Matthew 27. Because there are some things here about the gospel accounts that we need to see. There are four gospels. Matthew presents the Lord as king. That's the behold statement and the branch statement. Okay? BB. All right? Behold statement, branch statement. Mark 
presents him as servant. Luke presents him as man. John presents him as who he is, and that's God. The behold statements. By the way, you have the cherubs. You have the face of a lion, the face of an ox, the face of a man, and the face of an eagle. Very interesting. There they are. When you come to the book of Leviticus, there are five offerings in the book of Leviticus. Cherubim. Okay? Four of the five offerings require the shedding of blood. You with me? Okay? The, by the way, the, one, the meal offering doesn't require shedding of blood, but the other four do. So you have Matthew presents the trespass offering. The trespass offering has to do with the issue of sins, the activity. In, in the view of the death of Christ, that is of the, uh, its activity that's involved. Trespass means that you overstep the boundary. No trespassing. Don't cross the fence line. But what you did, you broke the law. Your activities were there. Okay? Mark comes in and deals with the sin offering. That's the nature, the sin nature. Okay? The root of the cause. Luke comes in and deals with the peace offering. And that's exactly what peace would be between God and the sinner. It's now peace. John comes in and presents the burnt offering. Okay? And again, that represents the total and complete consecration to God. The sin offering, or Matthew, the trespass offering... It looks at the sin, you broke the rules, you're in trouble. Mark presents the sin offering, it looks at the sin nature. Luke does the peace offering, and, it, and it, that, that is the issue of, uh, it brings communion between the sinner and God. And then John pre presents the burnt offering, that total and complete consecration to God. Now, these two, right here, are what is called the sweet savor offerings. I had to look to spell it. <laughs> savor offerings. Okay? Those first two are not. By the way, Psalms, you ready? <laughs> Psalm 69 deals with the trespass. Psalms 22 deals with the sin. Psalms 18 deals with the peace. Psalms 40 deals with the burnt. And then the meal offering down here is Psalms 16. So they all begin to relate. Each of these offerings, that, that again, that psalm matches up to it. And again, you can go into each of these psalms and you can see a parallel because of the way that the death of Christ is being presented. Again, those details, they don't all match. But man, when you see the big picture, what do they do? They match. They just flow together. Okay? Matthew 27. Let's just read this section and we'll... Get into it a little more maybe next time. By the way, if you look at these guys, John, Luke was a doctor. Mark was a, called a quitter. Matthew is a, uh, uh, what was Matthew? What did he do? I just had it. Publican, tax collector, yes. Publican. 
tax guy. John was the son of thunder. You see, I completely, they're not connected in what their backgrounds are at all. And yet they paint this portrait right on out for you. That tells you that that book has got a special author <laughs> called the Holy Spirit. By the way, there's a, there's a whole bunch of guys that write the Psalms. Moses writes about the offerings. The prophets talk about the four faces, the cherubs, and yet they all paint this very unique picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, if you touch, it has been said that if you touch that Bible anywhere, you touch the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, what does Hebrews 10 say? Low in the volume of the book, it's written about me. That's why you mess with those new Bibles. You're not just messing with you know, words on the page, you're messing with the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, Matthew 27, verse 50. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. And many women were there, beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him, among whom was Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph the mother of Zebedee's children. So what you're going to see here now, and we'll catch these details next time, is you're going to see a list of things that happened immediately, uh, some immediate accomplishments of Christ's death, okay? He's dying. The first thing you see, just to kind of catch here in verse 51, is that the veil in the temple is rent, but notice it's rent from top to bottom, not bottom to top. So no man did this. God did this. And uh, it'll, we'll pick up here, and just for jumping into this, you go back to Matthew 23, and he says, your house is now desolate. When he, I mean, that, that, that veil is like a foot and a half thick, and it skins, animal skins through there. And God literally rips that open. And what is behind there? What do the, they now see? They just see a box with cherubs on top because the glory of God is gone. It's left. You see these guys, the, the graves were open and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and they came out of the graves, again, critical, after his resurrection. They got to come after. They can't come before him because he's the first fruit. Now, these guys are like, um, like Lazarus. What happened to Lazarus? He, he can't, they died. But these guys, it's always been said that these guys were, were people of old. But it, but it can't be. Listen, if my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, if my great-uncle who fought in the Alamo rose up and walked in here, I would have no idea who he is. This is recent people and went into the Holy Spirit and appeared unto many. They're recognizable. These aren't, this isn't Abraham. This isn't a picture and all this stuff, you know. It's, it's not that at all. It's actually a witness about what's happened. Three days later, he comes up. He's the first fruits. They can't come up before he does, but when he comes up, then they come up too. And again, the, it, what it is, is it's a foretaste. It's a testimony. They come up and they go into that city of Jerusalem and they are known who they are. They appear to them. They, they, they have come back to the city after Christ is raised. And again, it's a testimony 
to the resurrection of Christ and the restoration potential that's now available to the nation of Israel. Because what's coming? The Acts ministry is coming. You blew it when you, you crucified the Messiah. You're going to have one more shot at it in our program here, the, Israel's program. You follow that? So did these people resurrect? Yes. Who were they? Saints that had just passed away. They're known to everybody. No big deal. It's just like Lazarus. I mean, everybody, I tell you what, the questions over the years about this at Bible conferences, who? well, it's who the verse says they are. But again, the kicker is after the resurrection, they're known by everyone, so it's recent people. It doesn't even say how many. It just says many bodies of the saints. Well, how many would many be? Well, more than three, <laughs> right? Two is two and three is few or a couple or whatever, you know. It doesn't say. I'm not worried about it. You shouldn't either. But it's a testimony. You see, he didn't leave them without testimonies here. It's a testimony to the resurrection of Christ. It's a testimony to the restoration potential that's now available for the nation of Israel. Verse 54, now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly saying, truly this was the Son of God. There's a Gentile. Centurion. Actually, there's a whole company of Gentiles, Romans, that are there. And they take their place with uh, Peter as he proclaims, you know what, truly this was the Son of God. And there's some things that are going on here. You go over to Luke 23, verse 47. Luke, look at Luke 23. We're already doing it. Might as well do it. Luke 23. Verse 47, now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. Notice, what did he do? He glorified God. Luke, Luke gives us a view of how a Gentile was looking at the Messiah. He does it over and over all through his, all through his letter. Verse 48, and all the people that came together uh, to that site, beholding the things which were done, smote their breasts and returned, and all his acquaintances and the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off, beholding these things. Well, come back to Matthew 27. We'll pick up in the middle of all this because the hour is up. But what a picture that you see. They're at the foot of the cross with the dead body of the Messiah still there. Think about that. There's a company of Gentiles that have gathered together. They look, look to him, and they say, surely there's the Son of God. And there's a glimmer of hope for them in Israel's program, and there he is. He's the hope for the nations. And then there sits the women. Boy, we're going to go over there and talk about the women. You see that little flock, all of his acquaintances. That's why John 1 there, the key in John 1, and the key of the whole book of John was verse, chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. He came into his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believed on his name. And there they are. And they're going to glorify God. The Gentiles are glorifying God. He's got the witnesses there. And just so, such a wonderful thing there. By the way, all of this is prophetic program. None of this is you and I today. It all belongs in Israel's program. So we'll pick up Matthew 27 there about verse 53, 54, whatnot. That thing about the garment, the veil renting, again, it's God doing it top to bottom. And it's a demonstration, Matthew 23, of your, I've left your house. De your house is now desolate. It's Matthew 23, 38. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And uh, that's their condition. They have failed miserably. And that's where they're at. Okay? All right, so we didn't get us down as far as we got, but we got some good stuff then.
All right. Dearly Father, we thank you for the evening, Lord. We thank you for the look here at the events around Calvary and what's being accomplished and the testimony that's there. And as feeble as it sounds and as much as it doesn't sound like it's enough, we're taught to just be thankful for this event and to say thank you and to have a thankful attitude and heart, have a heart of gratitude for all that you've accomplished for us. In your name we pray. Amen.